Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Chapter 26 marks a dramatic shift in Matthew's gospel account as he transitions from a teaching on things to come in chapters 24 and 25 to a retelling of things that are in chapters 26 and 27. He's transitioning from predictions of Jesus' future return to predictions of Jesus' soon departure as he talks to his disciples and says, I am about to leave you. It's a transition from powerful scenes of victory and vindication and judgment to, let's call it pathetic scenes of vulnerability and seeming defeat at the hands of wicked people. Whereas Matthew 25, which we looked at last week, it promises that the Son of Man is coming in glory with his angels to finally and eternally be enthroned. Chapter 26 promises that the Son of Man will be tortured and executed. So it's quite a shift as we turn from chapter 25 to chapter 26 and 27. These two chapters ahead of us now, they describe what's often called the Passion of the Christ. That is, the unjust events and brutal sufferings that pave our Lord's road toward the cross. And we all know, many of us do, because we're familiar with this story that lays ahead of us now, that it's horrific. It is brutal. And we remember it most notably on Good Friday every year, but hopefully we remember it between Good Fridays as well. It's a terrible scene. Injustice brutality, depravity, all on display. And yet at the same time, it's wonderful. And this is the the paradox, the tension that we hold in place. It is brutal, the passion of the Christ, but it is wonderful all at the same time. And the section we're studying today, the first half of Matthew chapter 26, it holds that same paradoxical tension. In it, we're going to see on one hand what we would expect, ugly, ugly corruption. We're going to see hatred and hard-heartedness and blindness and betrayal. And yet, on the other hand, there's beautiful provision as well here. There's sovereign and sacrificial provision and and precious and and powerful sacrifice. All at once, all this going on. And our task today and going out from here, our task is always to hold those two in tension and never lose sight of either. The suffering that secured our freedom and the death that brought us life. You think of a diamond, a diamond is beautiful, but when you place it atop a black backdrop at the jeweler, all of a sudden it comes to life in new ways because it's set atop that blackness. That's kind of like the jewel of the gospel. We have to set it atop the blackness of our depravity to really appreciate its beauty. Or the stars, how they really shine against the darkest part of night. That's what we're going to see today. These two hands, this terrible, terrible ugliness, and this wonderful, wonderful provision. Well, let's start with the bad news. Let's get that out of the way and set this blackness up before we look at the gem together. As we read the first half of Matthew 26, we're confronted on one hand, as I said, with this ugly, ugly corruption. Look at the first five verses of the chapter. 
It says, when Jesus had finished all these words, speaking of Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Let's just sit in the wretchedness of that text for a moment. It's terrible. We, we're told here that the chief priests and elders, in verse 3, these are the religious leaders of God's chosen nation, the, the leaders of this group. And we're told here that they are gathered together in the court of the high priest. They're not just meeting in a room somewhere or meeting on the street or in the marketplace. They are gathered in the place where divine justice was to be discerned and enacted. This is where they came to discern God's will and live it out to the people. So we've got God's leaders in God's holy place. But what are they doing? They are plotting an assassination. And not the assassination of a, of a murderer or a criminal, the assassination of the Son of God, their Messiah and King. Like right off the bat in Matthew 26, we're like, this is wretched. This is like a, a surgeon murdering patients on the table, or a mother slowly poisoning her children, or, or a teacher or a, or a priest abusing the people put in their care. It's terrible. It's the intentional harm being done when guidance and protection is expected. These are God's shepherds given to God's people to lead them. And they're using that very influence to do the exact opposite. It's terrible. Matthew 26 records the actions of desperate people, conniving people, callous leaders, those entrusted with the job of leading God's people in his way toward his truth, to life abundant. And here we find them plotting the slaughter of he who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's a stark, stark reality. And we could call this betrayal. It's really what it is. And we will see betrayal as we go on in this text. But that's what it is. These leaders are betraying God. They're betraying their position, and they're betraying the people of Israel. But it goes beyond that because it's also a national betrayal, as we've been reminded time and time again in Matthew's gospel. Look back to verse 3 for a moment. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people. We remember that they are representatives of the nation as a whole. As they act, so they are representing God's chosen people. We know that not every individual Israelite has rejected Jesus. I mean, the disciples are evidence of that. But at the same time, the whole of the nation has rejected him. Why? Because the leaders have rejected him. See, God had formed Israel, cared for Israel, protected them, disciplined them, was patient with them, and made promises to them. And now with his love for Israel reaching its crescendo in sending his son to redeem them, here they are conspiring against him. So it's national betrayal. We need to recognize that. This is this is ugly corruption, ugly corruption on display. And it gets even more ugly as the betrayal gets more personal. Drop to verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, it's one thing for the chief priests and the elders to do this, but here we have one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went 
to the chief priests. Here he is, one of the twelve, going to seek out the chief priests. They're not coming to him. We know they're off to the side conspiring and plotting, but here we have the twelve. Certainly they are on his side, right? But no, inside the twelve comes this person who seeks out a chance to hand over the Son of Man. Verse 15, and he said when he found them, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. That's not even a lot of money. That's the crazy thing. It's not even a lot of money. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, this was the amount of money that I would have to pay as an Israelite if one of my oxen attacked the slave of a neighbor. I would have to give them 30 pieces of silver. So the question here, and what we're, we're prompted with when we read this text is, how much is Jesus worth to Judas? And we have to conclude here, not a whole lot. Like 30 pieces of silver is not an overwhelming amount. That sticks out here. He's willing to hand over this guy that he has loved and walked with for years for some pocket change, really. It's terrible. How much is Jesus worth Judas? Not that much. Verse 16 and following. From then on, he, that's Judas, began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. It's an intimate setting. You can count the number of times that Matthew says the disciples, with his disciples, with his disciples, as the disciples. It's this intimate group. If you just picture for a moment in your mind's eye the last time you had a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas celebration around the table, and you picture who was there, I'm willing to bet it was your most loved people, your family members, your closest friends gathered to celebrate that wonderful feast. And it's the same here. Here we have Jesus gathered with his closest friends, gathered for a meaningful feast. And they're reclining and they're celebrating. This is meaningful. They're remembering the exodus that their ancestors were brought out of Egypt by the, by the hand of God. And they're, they're chatting and they're reminiscing the things that happened over the last number of years with Jesus. And then Jesus says, one of you, one of you, one of us, there's only a handful of people around the table, one of you is going to betray me. It's intimate. Verse 22, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. Notice they don't question the veracity of the, of the prediction, but they do question the depravity of their own heart. They say, Master, please let it not be me. It can't be me. It shouldn't be. It, it must not be me. May it not be me, Lord. It can't be. And in response to their grief, Jesus emphasizes how personal the coming betrayal will be in verse 23. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Today we might say the one we broke bread with. We broke bread together. The one the betrayal is coming from someone who I shared a dip with. It's intimate. This is someone we know closely. Verse 24, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man 
if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, that verse gives me chills, who was in the process of betraying him at that very moment, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Notice he can't even bring himself to say Lord like the other 11 up in verse 22. Surely not I, Lord. He says, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Judas, who is in the process of stabbing Messiah in the back, can't even bring himself to call him Lord like the other 11. This opening scene of Christ's cross-bound suffering is on the one hand full of ugly corruption. Desperate, weak leaders blinded by their own wickedness, by insecurity and envy. There's betrayal on a national level and tragically on the most personal level as well. Now, if you're like me, it's very easy to read stories like this in scripture, to shake your head and click your tongue at these rotten people. God, Judas, what a loser. Can you imagine doing that? These Pharisees, what were they thinking? Go back in time. Pharaoh, what, what is going on with that guy? I can't believe Samson. I can't believe Israel wandering, wandering in the wilderness. Don't they know by now? They saw the pillar of fire for crying out loud. They saw the, the sea parted. How are they wandering from this God they know so much? I oh, these, these silly, silly people. And yet, at the same time, as we grow in our understanding of God, as we grow in our understanding of his word and his holiness, we also grow in our understanding that we are not so different. There's not that big of a chasm between us and the Judases of scripture if we are honest. By God's grace, there's not. There's ugly corruption in my heart as well as in yours. That's hard in the culture we live in because the culture we live in is getting rid of all sin categories. There's no sin anymore. In fact, it's been said that the only thing sinful nowadays is found on a dessert menu. Sinful chocolates, sinful desserts, right? But we don't call anything sinful anymore. In fact, our world is in the process of systematically normalizing and celebrating basically every perversion that there is. Whether it's sexual perversion, whether it's idolatry, whatever the case may be. Not only are those things being brought into the fore, but they are being celebrated and, and, and celebrated as virtuous. And it says in scripture, woe when evil is called good. We look around our culture today and, and I can't help but think of the book of Judges. When it says that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is the world we're living in, where essentially we become God. Our, our sensitivities, everything that we believe becomes the moral compass. We've gotten rid of God. And while our world is confused about right and wrong, and it is, we have to be clear that Scripture is not confused. We're all sinners, Scripture says. This is the hard reality. We're all sinners. Rebels against the king. It's not that we're just broken or just a little off or just a little stained. No, we are rebels against the high king. That's what scripture says about us. That we multiple times, multiple times, that we commit cosmic treason against the God of the universe. It's terrible. And this is a hard reality, but again, we need to remind ourselves of it in the church because the culture is saying the exact exact opposite, that people are good. Give people a chance. And the Bible comes along and says, that's not true. That is a a hell-bound lie. Don't believe it. 
Now, don't worry, we're going to get to the good news in a moment. But I said we're going to start on the one hand, right? And it is bad news. In fact, let's just get a sample here from Scripture. You don't have to turn to these, but just listen to these. And most of these you know, probably off by heart. Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And then the rhetorical question, who can understand it? Who indeed? Mark chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men and women proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Famously, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. You know, if you look that up in Greek, guess what all means? All, all, that's what it means. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A few chapters later, he comes along in chapter 6, and he says, guess what the wages of that sin is that we are all guilty of? The wages of sin is death. And death in Scripture means separation. Separation is certainly spirit from body, but separation from a holy God and all that he is. The wages of sin is death. James Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So we've seen there's the sin of commission. I do these things, and that's wrong. But there's also the sin of omission. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't do it. That is sin. So I'm being hit on every side by my depravity. And one more here. Although we could go on for a while, but I can only handle so much. <laughs> First John, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It does no good to no one to soft-pedal sin, to bury our head in the sand and, and plug our ears and say we're not as bad as the Bible says we are. That does no one any good. I was at a church once where the, the pastor was assigned the text, the second half of Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. If you know that passage, it's, and the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness, and humanity is sinful, and so God gives them over to their sin, gives them over to their sin, and it lists this wretchedness of humanity apart from him. And the pastor got up, and he skipped to the end of that passage, didn't read that part, and spent 30 minutes apologizing for God's anger. He said, he's not, he's not really angry. I mean, it says wrath, but it's not what we think. He just loves us so much. He's sad that we're going this way. That does no one any good, brothers and sisters. We need to know where we're at. We need to know where we're at. That does no one any good to soft-pedal sin. One, because it's a slight against the character of God. Listen, if I hear someone slandering or talking badly about my wife, there is going to be some righteous indignation in me. And for those of us who love God, who belong to God, who have been saved by God, and who are kept by God, and will spend eternity with God, if we hear someone like that soft-pedaling his character, and, and pitting his wrath, which is righteous, against his love, and peddling that kind of heresy, that should offend us. That is not my God. My God is so loving and holy, 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 that he cannot abide sin in me, as well as in the Judases and the Pharisees and everything else in Scripture. But that is in me. 
We need to stare in the face of the ugly corruption presented in the pages of Scripture and in the pages of our daily lives. The hard truth is that while, yes, Israel's leaders here and, and Judas Iscariot, they exemplify extreme wretchedness, and they do. They do. But the truth is, and the hard truth is, that the idolatry and the pride that made those betrayals possible lives in my heart as well and lives in yours. John Stott, a famous pastor of the 20th century, he once wrote, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to first see it as something done by us. That we contributed to that sacrifice. As we sometimes sing here at the church, Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And here it is. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Not Israel's sin, not, not someone else's sin, not the culture's sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, until we accept and understand the depths of our own sin, how much we deeply offend the God of the universe, we will never fully understand the height of his grace. That's where rubber meets the road. It's not that we stare into the depths just to, to self-flagellate and, and whip ourselves. No, woe is us. That's not why. It's because it magnifies his grace. It magnifies his love. It magnifies the weight of his sacrifice when we understand the depths of the debt that he paid. Now, on the other hand, so there's the bad news, right? But there is a gem of the gospel that comes on top of that darkness, and that's where we turn now. As we saw back to Matthew chapter 26, this text, it showcases human depravity at its apex. Malicious, rotten, jealous, and evil. But as we know, there's so much more going on here. On one hand, there's ugly corruption, but on the other hand, there is beautiful, beautiful provision from God for us. Yes, there's human scheming and selfishness in this text, but there's also divine providence and self-sacrifice. Just as an example, look again at Jesus' words in verse 2. He says to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now compare that with what the men say in verse 5. Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So we have Jesus saying, I'm going to be killed during the festival, during the feast. And we have these people saying, we're not going to kill him during the festival, during the feast. Who wins? Who's right? Jesus is right. Why? Because none of this is an accident. He knows what's about to happen. Which makes it even more amazing, because he knows what he's walking into, and he willingly lays himself down at the hands of these evil people. And we add to that, as we, and we'll read the whole paragraph in a moment, but we add to that verse 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus knows what is coming. Verse 18, And he said, Go into this city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. Jesus knows what is coming. Verse 21, As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Jesus knows what is coming. Amidst the ugliness, God's providence, which means his control of all things. 
as well as the willingness of Jesus to sacrifice himself is all on display. There are no accidents here. Yes, there's ugly corruption, but there's also this beautiful provision that God is knitting together for our good, for his glory, that Jesus gives himself over to in this scene. It's beautiful. And it's a provision worthy of costly commemoration. Back to verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, which is just amazing, don't miss that, he's in the home staying with someone who's known as Simon the leper. Simon the unclean, basically. And here's Jesus, a rabbi, dining with him. And when he's there, verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And let's stop and just say they're right, aren't they? They are right. Yeah, I think that they are. In fact, the legalist in my heart, the pragmatist in my heart, looks at it and says, that money could have been used for a new wing, a new extension. We could have been, bought some paint with that. We could have done a children's program. You know, there's money there that we could have put to use in the ministry, right? So there's an offense here, and the disciples are calling it out. However, Jesus next corrects us all. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And we just did. We're just remembering what a costly commemoration this woman gives to Jesus on his way to the cross. This woman is anointing the king. It's true. But there's so much more going on than just anointing the king. She's anointing a king who's about to die. She's anointing the king who's about to leave his people, walk away, be taken away from his people. And, and unlike Judas, who Matthew compares and contrasts with this woman in the next scene, which we've already read, unlike Judas, who will sell Jesus out for an insignificant amount of money, this woman dumps her life savings on his head. Why? Because he is worthy of it. What he's about to do, the sacrifice he's about to make, it is worthy of this costly commemoration. Judas doesn't see it. In fact, the disciples struggle to see it. We could have used that money for something else. But this woman sees it, and we need to see it as well. It's a costly commemoration. You know, there's a reason that the Oscars are not held in the Boyd backyard. You know, there's a reason that the Super Bowl is not played in a secret park somewhere. There's a reason that the Nobel Peace Prize isn't given out via email. Why? Because we have decided that those deserve extravagance. Because our culture, rightly or wrongly, has decided that those events, those achievements, those accomplishments are worthy of costly commemoration. Anything less would be offensive because it's so great. And here this woman sees what's about to happen. Whether she knows all the details or not, she sees the king marching toward his death and says, this cannot go uncelebrated, unnoticed. It's worthy of everything I've got. And she pours out her life savings upon his head, much to the chagrin of those watching. And what makes it worthy is that Jesus' death is covenant confirming. And this is where we come to the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters. This is where it gets a little bit deep theologically, and we have to go back in time because Jesus is taking us back in time to the Passover and connecting two things here. But what he's about to do, die on the cross, we need to understand that it ratified 
It confirmed a covenant that had been promised centuries before, a covenant that we so desperately need. Verse 26, while they were eating, this is after the betrayal conversation, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And so at the Passover meal that the disciples had prepared, Jesus picked up the unleavened bread. And it's important here that it's unleavened, because we know through Scripture that leaven represents sin and hypocrisy. And he takes this and he says, this is my body. And we say it's unleavened because there's no sin in the body of the Lamb of God, in the body that's about to go to the cross. He takes this bread and he breaks it and he distributes it and he tells them to eat it. And he says, this is my body. And saying those words, this statement of Jesus is connecting things in the past with things that are happening in that very moment and will happen in the near future. He's connecting the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, remembered in the Passover meal, with the deliverance of sinners from sin, which will now be remembered with a new meal. Both rescue missions are beautiful provisions from God for his people. The former that foreshadowed and typified the one he's inaugurating in that moment. Verse 27, and to the end of this text, verse 29. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again here, Jesus takes part of the Passover ritual, which was the cup of blessing, and he kind of repurposes it in light of things that are about to take place. Just as ancient Israel, if you can think back, had hid under the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and they hid under that blood so that the righteous judgment would pass over them, and they would be freed. They would walk into freedom. Just like then, so too, Jesus is saying to his disciples, my blood, you're going to have to hide under it. Because righteous judgment is coming, and only those hidden under my blood, it will pass over, and then you will walk in eternal freedom. He's taking what is known to them and saying that just was a picture of things to come. They are shielded from this coming judgment and instead enjoy everlasting freedom. Now let's talk about this covenant a moment. So this is where it gets a little dense, okay? This covenant. But Jesus said here, of the cup, this is my blood of the covenant. We don't talk a lot about covenants, maybe not enough, in the New Testament church. We don't even ask the question, what is a covenant? Why is God making these covenants? He sees the need to step into history and say to his people, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Why? Isn't everything God says true and trustworthy? Of course it is. So why at these special moments does he say, okay, but now I'm really serious? Was he not serious before? And the only conclusion we can come to, and one that Scripture supports, is that covenants are for us. It's not for God's reassurance that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. It's because we don't believe him. We fail to believe the word of God. And so at times in history, he comes and he says, gets on his megaphone, he says, I know I've spoken before, but listen to me now. Here it is. This is the covenant I am cutting. And he, and he cuts it in such a way that if I undo this covenant, if I go against my word, I myself will be undone. That's how serious it is. And with the Abrahamic covenant, you may remember from Genesis 12, 15, and 17, with the Mosaic covenant, 
Blood always ratified those covenants. God comes along and says, I am making a solemn oath, a covenant with my people, and then he ratified it with blood, the blood of the animals. Kind of like signing a marriage certificate finalizes the nuptials. At the end of all that, we done deal. This is how we make it so. And it was blood for these covenants. Those covenants God made were sealed in blood. But there was another covenant that had never been ratified, given in the Old Testament. The other covenants, they were given, ratified, and the people walked in the knowledge of these truths. But there was one covenant that was promised, I will one day make a covenant, and it had never been confirmed. So the people of Israel are saying, when is this covenant going to be confirmed? Let me read the covenant for you, at least one description of it in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant he made with them at the foot of Sinai, that they broke time and time and time again, even though he was faithful, faithful, faithful. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. It's the new covenant. Because one day I'm going to make this covenant. Little, little taste, a taste test like at Costco. You get the sample, right? Here's the sample. Here's what it's going to be like. But the people were waiting. When? 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 Jeremiah predicted that there would come a day when God would make a new covenant with Israel, a covenant that includes promises of regeneration, promises of forgiveness of sins, and a regathering of the nation to enjoy safety and prosperity in the promised land forever. Now, obviously, we look around our world, and, and those blessings have not fully come to pass for the nation of Israel, but they will when the kingdom comes. He made the covenant, he ratifies the covenant of the cross, and we're looking for its full fulfillment, its full realization when the kingdom comes. It's like, again, marriage vows. Think of that. We stand at the altar, we exchange vows, and we say, this is what I'm promising to do. And we also say, till death do us part, oftentimes. Well, I'm not dying tomorrow. So that's not fulfilling all the covenant that I just made, right? But one day, we will fulfill the whole thing. We will realize all of it. The same with the covenant of God. He's saying, I make a covenant with you, and here's what I'm promising but you're not going to see the full thing until the kingdom comes. The kingdom by which Jesus just said, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine again, and I drink this cup with you in my Father's kingdom. Until all the blessings associated with this new covenant are realized. Now in the meantime, the church enters into some of the blessings of this new covenant. Most notably, regeneration. We call it new birth. John chapter 3. We're born again when we believe in Jesus. That's a blessing of the new covenant as well as the eternal forgiveness of sins. Sin is dealt with in the new covenant. As great as all the other covenants were, think of Noah's covenant, Abraham, Moses, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant. All of them were wonderful, promising different things, and yet at the same time, not a single one of them dealt with the problem of sin totally. That's why the new covenant was so wonderful. I will remember their iniquity no more. In the time of Jeremiah, there was sin all over the place. We got to deal with this sin issue. And God comes along and says, I will. I will. Don't worry. That's what the new covenant is about. That's what we ache for. That sin will be dealt with. That, that ugly corruption. It's only the new covenant that provides a final solution to our sin problem. 
The new covenant is with Israel, particularly and especially, but praise God, not exclusively. By believing in Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood confirmed this new covenant, we experience new birth and the forgiveness of sins. And that's why we continue to remember and continue to practice the meal Jesus inaugurated in Matthew chapter 26. He's initiating a new meal of remembrance, one that celebrates the ratification of the new covenant in his own blood that he's about to shed. And so when we take the bread, we remember the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, given and slain for us in our place, condemned. He stood not a speck of leaven in his body. And when we take the cup, we remember the covenant-enacting blood shed for us, providing the forgiveness of sins, all that ugly corruption we talked about for all who believe. And we have to say what a beautiful provision that is. There's ugly corruption, but there is beautiful provision in this text also. On the one hand, the first half of Matthew 26 is a picture of depravity and ugly corruption. It's true. But on the other hand, it showcases the beautiful provision God made for us, one of providence and self-sacrifice, worthy of costly commemoration, and one that confirmed a much-needed covenant in which we are brought by faith and kept by his power. Ugly corruption, yes, but beautiful provision, too. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we remember the worth of his death. That's what this text is about. That we remember the worth of his death. Not like Judas took a bit of money for it. Not even like the disciples who said, that money could be spent better elsewhere. But like this woman who broke that jar and poured it all over his head. This is a worthy death. This is an expensive death. And we need to remember that. It's easy for us today in the freedoms we enjoy to forget sometimes the worth of his death. We sing about it, we talk about it, we pray about it, we write about it. It's everywhere. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Greatest truth ever uttered in human history, ever. How is it that we can normalize it so and and minimize it and, and humanize it and rationalize it and scandalize it? We have got to remember the worth of his death. And this comes by understanding the ugliness of our sin and then celebrating the extent of God's grace on top of that. I'm going to ask you to take the elements that you grabbed either when you came in or while I've been talking. Take the elements with you. And we're going to celebrate this together. And as we do so, let's remember together. The blackness, yes, but the gem of the gospel on top as well. That our sin is worse than we can even imagine. It is. But his grace is deeper than we can imagine as well. That's what we need to keep in mind. That this is an expensive death. The worth of his death cannot be measured. So what I want to do is I want us to take the bread first. I'm going to pray for it, and we're going to partake together. And then I'll pray for the cup, and we'll partake together, and I'll close in prayer. And as we do, again, let's remember the worth of his death. It's, a, it's an expensive death for our sake. It paid a debt that we can't even calculate. It's so deep. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.